Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. My guest today is Kevin Lynch, who is the son of journalist Dan Lynch. And he's going to pay a tribute to his dad. So, Kevin, from the time you were a little tyke, you were surrounded by journalism and stories and stuff, right? Absolutely. I grew up in a household where uh, the news was very important and was very much a part of our, uh, I guess, our daily life. So did you, did you, do you have remembrances of before you guys came to Clifton Park and uh, him working at the Times Union? Um, Very little. I mean, we left Long Island in, uh, 1979 I was four years old and I remember a little bit about living on Long Island I remember our neighbors um but when I think about the layout of the house I can remember what the upstairs looked like I don't remember anything about what the layout of the downstairs was but we left in 1979 um my dad was working for um Newsday on Long Island and he ended up taking a job at the Albany Times Union so we moved to the area and I remember the moves, and I remember when we got to Clifton Park. So, I mean, as soon as we got there, I mean, he was working full-time at the Times Union. So as long as, I mean, my whole life, he, he was working at that paper um, as soon as we got to Albany. So he he had a number of different positions at the at the Times Union, right? He didn't write as much. In his in the first years of his tenure there, but he wrote more stories later on, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he was the nighttime managing editor at first, mm-hmm. uh, and I think I remember he worked. He did something with the Knickerbocker News, which was like the afternoon newspaper in the area, um, which obviously is no longer around, but. I was right. young, so I don't remember that as much. I remember when he became the full-time managing editor, which wasn't much longer after we arrived. I don't remember exactly when it was, but he went from being like the nighttime city editor to the managing editor very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that was the position that he had most of my most of the time I was growing up in the area. That was the position that he had from about 1980 until the late 90s. So when he would come home, would he tell you, would he tell uh, stories to you, your sister and your mom about what he was going to write oh. about, why it was important and stuff? Not really too much to us. I mean, when he was he was writing books, too, as you know. He was a novelist. And so a lot of times he would come home from work. He would grab a quick bite to eat. Maybe watch TV for well. The first thing he would do when he got home was say, "I want to get out of this suit," because he wore a suit to work every day, and I don't think he enjoyed it. So as soon as he got home, the first thing he would do was head upstairs and put on his Temple sweatshirt and his Temple University sweatpants, and come back downstairs. He'd eat something, he'd watch a little bit of TV, and then he would just go downstairs to his study and write write for anywhere between two and four hours, work, working on his books, and that was essentially mm-hmm. his daily routine. So he would work all day, come home, spend some time with us. Uh, we'd chat a little bit. Um, one of my earliest memories, though, and something just came up the other day, somebody asked me the first major news event that I remember. 
And what I remember was while uh, Ronald Reagan getting shot, I believe my dad was off. He wasn't working that day. I forget what day of the week it was. For some reason, he wasn't at the office when it happened. But I remember the phone ringing at the house, and he answered the phone, and I can just, I remember him just saying, I'm on my way. And I hung up the phone, and my mom looks at him, and she says, what happened? And he said, some lunatic just shot Reagan. And he got in the car and went to the office. That's all we knew about it at that point. Um, and then turned on the TV, and that was the, ma- the first major news event. Um, most people my my age, they talk about the Challenger blowing up. But for me, the first major event I remember was Reagan getting shot because I remember my dad had to leave immediately and get to the office at the Times Union because obviously it was such a big event. Well, I re- you know I read your father's columns for years. And I, I worked. I volunteered for his campaign, and then after the election, when when nine eleven hit, um, I I was working for the state, and I was in a class that day, and I didn't know anything until quarter of twelve, and I oh, wow. I remember, yeah. And I remember calling your father, and your father was at the studio, and he was saying that there were thousands of people killed, and he was on the radio all all day, and I can remember that as vivid as you know, it was pretty vivid. So that that that's one memory I've I've got from your father, and of course well, there's a little bit and of you were. There was a little bit of overlap for myself and him because we were both working in the media on 9-11. So we both kind of covered that in our own way. Um, he was you know, on the radio in Albany, and I was working for the National Enquirer in Florida. And I remember driving to work that morning, and I was listening to Howard Stern. And they play that Howard Stern segment every year on the anniversary of 9-11. But Howard Stern was the one that kind of broke the news to me as far as what was happening and when I got to work, I got on the elevator, and as soon as I got off the elevator on the second floor at the National Enquirer building, we had flat-screen TVs in the newsroom. And as soon as I walked in the newsroom, everybody was standing up already. Everybody was standing, staring at the TVs. And as soon as I walked in, on live television, immediately when I walked into that newsroom, the second plane hit the second tower. And, I mean, prior to that, I wasn't sure. I didn't know that it was uh, – an Airbus. I didn't know it was such a large plane. I thought at the time somebody had just been flying around New York in a little Buddy Holly Cessna and just crashed into the building on an act accidentally. So while I was thinking about what I just heard on Stern, I wasn't prepared for what I saw as soon as I walked into the newsroom. Um, but I didn't even get a chance to talk to my dad that day. We both were so busy that we didn't talk till the following morning. So all of 9-11, as it was unraveling, I didn't even get a chance to talk to my, my parents. Um, so it was just, I remember just talking to him the next day, because it was just such a huge event. And I, that's when he told me he was on the radio all day. So, so Howard Stern, that's a pretty interesting story in itself. Uh, he saw the first plane hit, and he mentioned it on the air, and since he's such a jokester, 
people thought he he was telling the joke and it wasn't real and but it was real and and oh, you know, I remember how that was the day Howard Stern went serious. I remember that I remember because I used to listen to him on the way to work. I had like a fifteen minute commute and I would listen to Stern sometimes in the morning. And you know, obviously, like you said, he was known as more of a practical jokester. But I mean, he went real serious that day, and he covered it like a real journalist, a real broadcast journalist in any event. And I mean, that's even with the National Enquirer, we were working on tabloid stories and celebrity nonsense. And then as soon as that happened, all those stories got pushed aside, covered 9/11, and they were, you know, they covered it as a very legitimate news story. So we all got real serious real quick about the work we had to do. Hmm. So the reason I called you and I wanted to do this interview, um, your dad passed away, is it, what, four years ago? Yeah, four years ago on um, on June 4th. He, he brought so much to the table when it came to the Times Union I, I still miss his columns. Um, it's so unfortunate. Did he write in Florida? I not. He didn't. He kept. Well, one thing about my father is he kept an incredibly detailed journal. So he wrote every day. The years he wrote in that journal, I want to say. Uh, so there are volumes of that sort of thing. Um, and he did. He did finish and published two additional books down here. Um, and there were some projects that he was working on, but uh, he had such a heavy workload for so long that when he came to Florida, when he when he retired, he, he really didn't write as much as he probably wanted to, but I think he just needed a break. When he ran for the New York State Legislature, where were you at that point? Uh, that was, I had just graduated college. That was, I believe when he threw his hat in the ring, I want to say that was the summer of 99, I'm guessing. Um, mm-hmm. or maybe a little bit before that. And I had just graduated college and moved to LA and I had just gotten a job with the National Enquirer within like, I moved to LA and within six months I got that job at the Enquirer. So that was all going on right around the time he decided to run for uh state assembly. So I was doing my, I mean, I was trying to get my career launched and he was trying to mm-hmm. move his career in a different direction, but, right. um, you know, we kept, we kept in touch. I mean, he, I remember him telling me, you know, the best case scenario is I get elected. The worst case scenario is I write a book about it. And obviously, you know, he did write the book and it sold very well in Albany. Um, so I thought that was one of the projects he was proud of. Um. <laughs> As you probably know, I mentioned in that book, and and it was funny because one time I ran into Danny Donahue, who who was the president of CSEA at uh, the you know uh, state employees union, and I asked him if he had read the book, and he looked at me and he says, "No, I haven't read the book, and it's my understanding that he was not nice to anybody in the book." And I said, well, he was nice to me in the book. He says, well, you're about the only one. So, um, you know, I think it got wide coverage. I enjoyed that book. You know, a lot of the people, you know, I knew or knew about. So it was a fun read, uh, Running with the Machine. 
And and I don't know if it's still in print, but, you know, if anybody is interested in politics, that was a really good book. So I'm sure you've yeah, read it, right, Kevin? Yeah, a lot of my friends read. I've read it. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot one of the books that a few of my friends have read. I was in, obviously, I studied journalism. I worked for a student newspaper in school, and so I'm still friends with some of the guys that I graduated college with that uh, some of them are still in the media. Most of them aren't. But that was a book that a lot of them read. It's one of the rare books my father wrote that I had a handful of friends that read. Um, now, the people that are from Albany, obviously, that read it have a way better understanding. But I think the book does a pretty good job of preparing somebody if they want to enter politics at a later stage in life, mm-hmm. what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Obviously, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a fun game for a lot of people. So, out of all of the stories that your father had written, which one stands in, in your mind the most? Well, I mean, I mean, I, for the, the book Yellow, oh, the Times Union stuff. I was going to say the book, his novel Yellow is dedicated to me, so that always is important to me. Um, but the stories he wrote with TU, I know when he was the managing editor, I know one of the. Um, one of the stories that he was most proud of, and this was a long, this was going back, um, was when they were building the Knickerbocker Arena, which was in the Pepsi right. and now, ironically, I think is now the Times Union Arena. Um, and he, they, he, he, he stuck, he put a bunch of, uh, he stuck a bunch of reporters on that story. And there was a lot of kickbacks going on with Jim Corrine and, I don't know if you remember all of that, but he exposed mm-hmm. a great deal of corruption in the in the construction of that arena and brought down a lot of people. And mm-hmm. I know that he's including, very proud. In, including uh, Jim Coyne. Yeah, and I know that he was very proud of that work, the team that he put together. Now, he wasn't writing the stories, but he was kind of a – he was the one pulling the strings. I mean, he was the master of puppets. He put his reporters on it and, you know, like Woodward and Bernstein followed the money. And that was his Watergate, you know, as far as he was concerned. So that was stuck story, out. That one always stuck out for me. That was one of the stories that I know he was most proud of. Um, and I know he worked – I'm going to forget the names here. There was a um, basketball player. Um, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time remembering the details of it. That got roughed up in Albany by a couple of undercover cops. And I think the basketball player turned out to be the son of somebody significant. And uh, the cops tried to, you know, bury that and didn't really want to talk about it. But it was obviously, you know, a case of brutality. And I know he wrote about that at length. And I know that he was, he was proud of that. I think my dad – made him a good journalist was holding people accountable and using the the media properly to, you know, expose corruption and hold people accountable. And that that's the something that I feel has been missing in journalism. I just mm-hmm. feel like it, it, it's not serving its purpose, you know, as as well as it should be. The one story that sticks out in my mind is uh the Gilson story, that was a yeah, hot well, potato. 
I wasn't moving in the area at the time. I went to high school with the Gilson kids, um, and they lived in our neighborhood when I was growing up. So I was familiar with them. And, I, again, I wasn't living at home. I was in college at the time. But that was a story he just couldn't let go of. And that came at a weird time, too, because that was right around the time he stopped – he stepped down as the managing editor. And so mm-hmm. when he stopped managing his reporters, he got to be his own – he got to do his own work. And I think when he got to do boots on the ground reporting again, it kind of rejuvenated him. I mean, he was in management for so long that he had gotten away from the daily grind of of – knocking on doors and digging through court records. And I think that case really was important to him um, because he got back to his roots. And it was something that he just really, really worked hard on and uh, was able to get a lot of information. And I know he was proud of that, too. Right. It consumed him for quite a while. I know that. Yeah, and, I mean, I and, remember, and, I think, whenever I called home and talked to my parents when I was at college and asked, like, what's going on, he would say, I'm still working on this Gilson story. Right. Now, then he shifted into radio. Um, was he doing radio at the same time he was writing at the beginning? Do you know? I don't remember. Yeah, I, 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 I want to say he did a little bit of radio while he was still at the Times Union. I think there was some overlap, though. And then mm-hmm. when he decided to run for assembly, that was the end of the Times Union. And after that, he just went to radio full-time. Did he enjoy radio? I think he did. I mean, anyone that knows my dad will tell you that he likes listening to him. He likes listening to himself talk. So I really do think he likes radio quite a bit. Mm. So um, then, then he decided that he was going to move out of New York and, and move to Florida. When he was in Florida, what was was he writing down there? While he was here, but he did the radio show from Florida for a handful of years. So he actually came right. down here. He took a year off. He taught high school. Um, he taught high school English for, I guess, a semester and quickly determined that it wasn't for him. Um, and then he did the radio show again, but he did it half the year, most of the year down here, and then he had his house up in Cuca Lake in the Finger Lakes that I'm sure you know about. He talked about it all the time. Um, and then he would do the show from up there for part of the year. And so he did do the radio for a while while he was still in Florida, and he still covered Albany, but he covered Albany from Florida. And he had a little studio in his apartment. Uh-huh. That had to be pretty difficult. Yeah, I mean, things got easier with internet and and phone. I mean, he could call up there. But, again, he wasn't boots on the ground. It wasn't like he could do a lot of the the digging and and fact-checking and all that stuff on his own. But as far as having people on the show and having callers call in, I mean, he was still very connected to Albany politics, and so there was never a shortage of things for him to talk about. Now, for a time, the journalism bug hit, hit you. Uh, you were working in journalism. Uh, you were working for the National Enquirer. But then you decided it wasn't for you. 
What was it about journalism that, you know, after a while said, this isn't for me? Well, I took a different route. I mean, I got into the tabloid business young. Most of the tabloid guys I was working with were older guys that had long careers at papers like the New York Daily News and New York Post and the Philadelphia Bulletin back then. And, you know, they already had their kind of mainstream journalism careers and then shifted to the tabloids. My situation was I got involved in the tabloids right out of college. And if you wanted to try to go, I guess, quote unquote, legitimate after that, you had a much harder time making that transition from tabloid media back into, you know, regular, I guess, mainstream. Oh, well, at the time, and especially now, that line has gotten blurred more and more Mm -hmm. as you move forward. Um, But really, a big reason was I didn't think the money was there anymore. I mean, journalists are getting paid like school teachers. You've got your top-tier guys making big big bucks. But for the most part, you're not going to make a whole lot of money, you know, covering town hall meetings for the local daily. And I just – I wasn't writing what I wanted. I wasn't writing what I wanted to write about. And I just – I just got kind of sour on the industry and the money wasn't there anymore. The internet was dominating the news cycle. Stories couldn't, couldn't be held. You know, no one was, no one was waking up in the morning and and grabbing the newspaper off their front porch and reading breaking news anymore. So those days were just long gone. I knew when I got into journalism, I knew when I was in college and started writing from the newspaper, my college newspaper, my dad said to me, he said, you know, you're getting into this industry at a time when it's falling apart. I'm letting you know that if you pursue this as a career, you're probably not going to have the same experience that I've had because of what's happening in the industry. But he was right. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I don't think I would enjoy working at a daily newspaper right now. Right. The Times Union is nothing like it was when your father, you know, was involved with it. So, um, oh, I'm sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I read I, it, but there's yeah. really not much there. I remember one time yeah. you saw this saying that National Enquirer was really a legitimate publication, and a lot of the news that was real um, came from the. National Enquirer. Is that true today? I think that paper has fallen off a cliff, too, to be honest with you. I mean, we worked on some good stories when I was there. Um, I talked to a lot of the guys that had been there for 30 years. And, you know, I know when I was coming on, they were coming off of the O.J. Simpson and the JonBenet Ramsey stuff. And they were they were breaking news on that those articles, those stories for years, every week. And they they took the lead on those two stories. And I remember the O.J. Simpson thing especially, was like that was right around the time the line started getting blurry between what is considered tabloid news and what is considered, you know, page one, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post mm-hmm. news, because there was that crossover there between celebrity and, and hard news. And so I, I came in on the tail end of that and they were still riding that, and that was what the focus was on. They they were they you know, they started 
shifting into politics and they got far away from a lot of the gory stuff they used to write about. Um, celebrity stuff was still their bread and butter, but they would hit a they would hit a good news story and they would really work it. They threw a lot of resources at it. Um, really talented investigative reporters that worked there at the time. But again, the, the money dried up. They weren't paying these guys what they were worth anymore, and it, it was got harder for them to find the talent because they weren't paying as much as they used to. Do you do you there's pundits all over the internet, uh, people who write stories on Facebook and stuff like that. Would you consider Facebook a a legitimate news source? That's a great question. I mean, it depends on what you read on Facebook. It's just like the Internet itself. I mean, there's there's a lot of – obviously, there's an overwhelming amount of content. I mean, everything you could possibly want to learn about is on your iPhone. I mean, you could go read encyclopedias or you could go to, you know – wacko cult websites and read about some bizarre, you know, things. So I just think you have to be able to navigate it and use your judgment and check and double check your sources because mm-hmm. there's so much content out. It's very hard to regulate it. So mm-hmm. I, mean, I, would, I wouldn't say Facebook is a legitimate news source, but, you know, if I'm scrolling through it and I see that the headline says Reuters or the Associated Press or NPR, and I read that story, you know, I, I'm pretty good at sorting out what's legitimate and what's phony. So mm-hmm. I think what Facebook does is does link you to good news stories, but I don't think anybody is breaking news on Facebook. I think the stories are breaking elsewhere, and then people are posting it to Facebook. Um, I mean, it's not as if Facebook uh, has a team of reporters out there you know, breaking stories. They just basically gather the information from other news sources. So I want to get one last question in. I think it was the day that your father passed away. He wanted to watch a football game and drink beer. Is that right? Yeah, um, my father was in hospice. Um, You know, he he took a fall and went to the hospital and came back out. I mean, you know he had cancer, and so he had been sick for a little while. And he took a fall at the house. He went to the hospital. He got out. And a couple of weeks later, he fell again and went back in. And I went and saw him the, the first night. Um, his wife had left, and it was just he and I. And things were looking grim at that point. I still had some optimism um, that he'd pull through and he, he was going to get out of the hospital. And he wanted me to go get him some beer. <laughs> I was telling him, I'm like, I don't know if the hospital's going to allow that. And I remember him just saying, look, what's it going to do to me? And I said, well, aren't you on medication? You know, should you be drinking a beer? And I just got that feeling that he wanted to share a beer with me because it was probably going to be the last opportunity he had. So I went to the store and came back with some cold Heineken's. And, you know, I poured poured some in his little hospital cup. And we sat there and we, but we said and uh, drank a beer together. And then my sister came down, fearing that this might be the last time that she would get to see him. And so we kind of did shifts at the hospital, and I left. And the next day, she went and saw him, and she made the beer run. And I wasn't there for it, but he told her to put on a TV game, to put on the television because he wanted to watch the Eagles game. 
because as you know, we were our family are all Eagles fans. And uh, Shelly looked at him and said, "It's June. There's no football on right now." So mm-hmm. he just at the end, all he really wanted to do was spend time with us, drink a beer, and watch some football. I think, mm. I think what he wanted to do. So we're just about out of time, Kevin. So give your give your book a little plug. Oh yeah, we're talking about me now. Uh, yeah, my book is Tabloid Baby. Um, it was published in February. It's uh, about a wayward, uh, disenfranchised journalist who uh, covers an event in Florida. It's on Amazon. It's available all online booksellers. Again, it's called Tabloid Baby by Kevin Lynch. It's been selling pretty well. I'm happy about it. I'm proud of it. If anyone's listening, buy my book. <laughs> I guess that's the, the plug I've got. Thanks, Kevin. Um, we've Thanks just about ran out of time. So you have been listening to Kevin Lynch, uh, Dan Lynch's son. I'm Cynthia Pooler. This is Focus on Albany. If you like this show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Kevin, thank you so much for uh, paying a tribute to your dad. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Cynthia.